Tracy McCauley. And I'm Liz Zuleika. We are cardiology pharmacists, educators, and self-declared literature crusaders. And welcome to CardioScript, a cardiology podcast brought to you in collaboration with the ACCP Cardiology Practice and Research Network. And thank you for joining us on this CardioScript's Classics episode, where we take a step back in time and explore literature that got us to where we are today. In part two of Vasodilators and HEFREF, we're once again joined by Dr. Robert Page. Thanks for joining us again on another episode. If you haven't had a chance as listeners, then you might want to go back out and listen to the first episode. But just a quick summary, we've left off with really the defining role of ACE inhibitors as vasodilator therapy for patients with HEFREF and talked a lot through the role of hydralazine and nitrate. And I'd like to pick up um, today with what you see as the role for angiotensin receptor blockers based on the literature available. Well, I, I'm going to bring a highlight. When you look at the evolution um, of the ARB story, starting out with Elite One, which was looking at Losartan versus Captopril, um, and then moving into the Elite Two, this I, I use these two trials as an example with, with pharmacy students to say this is why you have to learn statistics. Because remember when Elite, and again, what Elite one was really looking at, again, an older population greater than 65 who were completely ACE naive. The, the other key thing on the study is that it was powered looking at tolerability. It, they found this huge reduction in mortality with Losartan compared to that of Captopril. Um, even though, again, they didn't find any difference with regards to tolerability. It was basically Captopril without a cough. But what was interesting about that was that wasn't what, how it was sold. It was sold as, look at this great reduction in mortality. And I, this is when I tell students, I'm like, this is why you got to look at the statistics. Because this study was not powered to look at mortality. And it was an example of a time where we should have probably rejected the null or accepted the null hypothesis rather than rejected. And what is that, a type one error? Really, they, FDA made Merck go back. They sold them. They're like, you're not powered you got to go back and repeat the study. And so when they did, they did it with Elite 2. And it depends, this is how, when you look at Elite 2, is the identical same study design, same endpoints, just larger population. And, you know, it's interesting, you can look at this glass half empty, half full. There was no difference in terms of any of the endpoints between uh, Losartan versus that of Captopril. And I took this as a glass half, class half full because, for me, when that study came out, it actually made us feel comfortable to say, you know what, we really can substitute with an ARB. And maybe Valheft brings that home a little bit to me because they did do twice daily Valsartan compared to once a day. And another thing too, they were adequately powered. That was another yep. thing. And so again, within this particular study, patients were randomized to receive Valsartan versus placebo. Now, the one thing about Valheft is that people don't realize this is an add-on therapy. So patients were on background therapy of, of, of an ACE inhibitor. And so, but there was a small percentage of patients that weren't, they weren't on an ACE. But again, this study in my mind is not just looking at active treatment versus active. It's looking at really patients who were on an ACE versus a combo, you know? Yeah. Um, and because again, patients were randomized, they had to come in on an ACE inhibitor, background therapies, 
then they were randomized to, again, valsartan and titrated up to what, 160 milligrams twice daily, and then, or they got placebo twice daily. But again, in this study was, they had that, that the composite endpoint of looking at hospitalization and mortality, and then also then looking also just at hospitalization. Although their all-cause mortality was, I mean, really just very similar, just so people have the numbers, 19.7 versus 19.4, and p-value of 0.8. So you can't, it's hard to get much closer than that, but the, yeah. that m composite endpoint was huge. So it was statistically significant, but it also included the IV inotropic agent use, if they had to be put on IV vasodilators, like they threw everything into that composite endpoint, which ended up being significant. Secondary yeah. endpoint of heart failure hospitalizations though was reduced. Yeah. So and I think that's what drove that composite endpoint. That is really what drove it was hospitalization. And I think people kind of wish in hindsight, like that would have, so adding it became sort of a, a semi-popular thing. You remember um, that? They, yeah. Yes, but, I remember we were, it, where that put us, remember was, all right, you were on an ACE and then basically you were on a diuretic. Now this is kind of pre-acceptance of beta blockers. You got on a beta blocker, but then what was your options? You could either go down an MRA route or you could add on an ARP. And the thought, what drove that, at least I, over here, again, I've been kind of Colorado centric, but was that if the patient could not follow up with regards to their potassium, then we would kind of do the combo. And if not, then we went with the MRA. Right. I would always say, well, why would you want to add an ARB on board when I can get a mortality benefit? Yeah. <laughs> Versus, I mean, there's no mortality benefit, but that was the strategy at that time after about that. And do you remember what else gave us pause was the oh. hypothesis generating subgroup analysis. So right yeah. around the same time as the Valhef study were the first beta blocker studies. So we talked about Rawls had come out, but also late in um, 1999 was the first major um, beta blocker study. So patients who happened to be on all three, so beta blocker uptake was still pretty low at this point in these trials. Um, as you would expect, there was only about 20%, if I recall, of patients on beta blockers. And if you were on all three, that subgroup analysis statistically significantly was in favor of placebo for and death. That, yes. And this caused a huge issue. The FDA put it in the memory, in the package labeling for all ARBs of that from Valhef. <laughs> And then the FDA made in the CHARM trials with Canisar, and they made them go back and look at every excruciating aspect. Is it the dose of the ACE? Is it of the R? And none, none. And so that <laughs> caused a lot of controversy. I think that's interesting because the CHARMED added trial, which was very similar in design then to Valhef, you see in a pre-specified way, because that was a pre-specified large subgroup analysis, that that same signal was not there. Not there. Not even close to there. So it was a perfect example when we're teaching our students and residents of why subgroup analysis should be hypothesis generating. Exactly. That really changed when the CHARM added trial came out. That actually, FDA got rid of that out of the package insert. Now there were, when we look at these trials, Elite and Valheft and Charm, they do, because of the importance of ACE inhibitors impact on heart failure, there are small numbers of patients in each of these trials that have a history of angioedema on ACE inhibitors so and get put on ARM. I mean, the Charm alternative comes in. 
Yeah. And so I think it's important for people just to think about that because what is your approach to the person who's had angioedema on an ACE when it comes to whether or not you use an ARB? All right. So this is the thing. The one thing about the charm added or excuse me, the charm alternative trial. And that's, this is the only thing I took away from that because in that trial, if you were intolerant to it, you got randomized to, you know, what is it? Placebo versus canisartan. And then they looked to see, again, if you had an intolerance, like hypotension, angioedema, again, you, they looked to see what percentage actually then occurred in the arm. And to me, that was the angioedema. Um, and uh, it is the most important thing because it really does answer that question of what is the potential amount. And if I remember correctly, if you look at severe, absolute uh, like warning, hospitalization, medical therapy, it's about 2.5%. If you look at overall angioedema, it's going to be what, about 10, 10% or so. And so in my mind, you, you have an option, and this is what we give patients. If they have angioedema, you can go to an ARB or you can go to hydralazine and isosorbide. But again, we're making a lot of leaps here. The mortality benefit we know within, if we know that an ARB in terms of mortality benefit is the same as that of an ACE, and we know that an ACE <laughs> is better than a combination of hydralazine and isorbide in terms of mortality, and to me, what I worry the most about, because you don't really usually die from angioedema, but is overall death from my heart failure, I, we go directly now, based on these associations, we would go with an ARB um, because of those percentages. And I, I quote the CHARM alternative trial when I have like particularly internists that go, well, what is the cross-reactivity? But then I have students and residents that go, oh, that's still high percentage. And I'm like, when you're looking at mortality and risk and benefit, a yeah. complex drug regimen with, with some reduction mortality versus an ARB that can be either once or twice a day and then it can cause us, a, a, it's the same mortality yeah. benefit. So I don't know, how do you, I mean, that's how I approach it. What, do you, what are your thoughts? I do the exact same thing because I think if you throw in some of the antihypertensive trials that look at the cross-reaction too, we have a body, it's small because the, the rate uh, the occurrence of angioedema is so rare. And then once those patients are included in clinical trials, we are looking at very small numbers. So I will say we don't definitively know the cross-reactivity, but um, if you look at the actual subset of patients who did have angioedema and those patients, if they actually developed angioedema, the absolute numbers are very low. Yeah, and so well. it's like angioedema developed in some other patients for maybe other, other reasons unrelated to the drug. We don't know. And it's so... I think what you said was important for the indication of heart failure, the risk, you know, is not outweighed by the benefit. But if I'm treating a hypertensive patient, I've got plenty of other options. Let's talk about what people have long been wanting to hear us get to. So where are we now in an era that is post paradigm HF? <laughs> where are we now? To be quite honest with you, I will tell you this, even though when you look at the statistics, um, there's finally been an uptick with Entresto use. I find that, and it, it hasn't very been studied very well within class three and four heart failure. I can say we are a big Entresto institution at the University of Colorado, so we use it a lot. 
And I will say my experience has been, I can't really get patients on the appropriate, you can't get them. I, it's just because you have two blood pressure medicines in one and they're in, already in a class three or four patient with heart failure, they're already hypotensive. So you kind of tank their blood pressure. But I do believe that the uptick is there. Unfortunately, what is really driving its use is third-party plans. If I have HEFREP, I would almost recommend de novo recommending the, I would want to be on that drug because you're getting a 20% reduction. The best reduction that we've ever seen in terms of mortality, cardiovascular hospitalization, and it's 20% across the board, which with ACE inhibitors, it's, you know, from Satan salt and all those, it's what, 16%, 18%, just in that range. And so this is actually a truly life-saving drug. I think it's hard to say all the impact we've talked about with that backbone therapy of enalapril. There's a lot of people who talk about paradigm and the controversy of they should have compared to Valsartan. And I, I've always argued, no, they shouldn't have. Look at everything no. we've talked about with enalapril. No, they use the right no dose. You they use it. the right drug. I mean, I just think you can nay say that trial, but it was well-designed, well-done, adequately powered, and showed it was better. And Absolutely. And the other, the other thing too, you bring up a good point. You cannot erase history when it comes to clinical trials. They use the doses that they did based upon everything we just, with in terms of previous ACE inhibitor trials. Same thing goes when you did, looked at Comet, which looked at metoprolol tartrate versus that of carvedilol. And people go, well, the dose of metoprolol tartrate was too low. Well, the reason is, is because the earliest study with beta blockers was the MDT trial, and they use that same dose of metoprolol tartrate. And it's the same thing with this. So I agree with you 100%. And, you know, again, um, the reason the indication is that it's in somebody who has tolerated or has a history of taking an ACE or an ARB, it's based upon the clinical trial, which was what Paradigm did. You had to be, you know, you had a run-in time period with being on an ACE. And so, you know, and that's the big controversy is can we start at de novo, the, the um, ARNI? Do you use those dosing conversions that are uh, in the package insert? I never do. And I'm going to highlight two things on this. Reason is I can't find patients can't tolerate it, but also the data published by our colleague, Dr. Orly Vardani, showed that really there's no difference in mortality between low and high doses. So of course, it was a post hoc analysis, so I have to caveat that. But to me, if I can just get somebody on a very low dose, you're still going to see some benefit. And I think if people think back to Atlas, there really wasn't a difference in mortality. Well, let me tell you, that study I know had some drama with it. And again, what Atlas was really looking at was saying, and, and again, one of the largest ACE inhibitor trials we've ever conducted, but it actually looked at comparing low versus high dose. And of course, the average was 3.5 milligrams of lisinopril versus, what, 35. So I always, in my mind, think of it as being like 5 versus 40. And this study, again, the one thing to highlight, again, it's glass half full, half empty. But the major endpoint where it's powered was looking at mortality, and there was no difference. And I remember I had one cardiologist that I looked at, and he would look at, he would say, oh, well, there is benefit to increasing the dose of the ACE. And I would say, and I go, well, yeah, based on secondary endpoints. If you look at those secondary endpoints, they throw everything in like with the kitchen sink. And when you have such a large number of patients in a trial, anything can become statistically significant. And if you look at the at those those reductions, they're what 
8% reduction in the composite of like what hospitalization, mortality, stroke, whatever. They combine everything all into one thing. They're not that sexy. But if you're thinking, remember, we talked about blood pressure as being like money and you want to hold on to your money. And a large number of our patients with advanced heart failure don't have that blood pressure. I'm going to recommend bumping up the beta blocker way before I bump up the ACE inhibitor. So, well, and I think that's just another important piece of the puzzle. And it, although we'd love to see a prospective version of that with Sucubitrol Valsartan, and like we said, but the post hoc data is in line with the other data we have for vasodilators. Absolutely. And I think it just is further evidence of maybe our overall approach of focusing on a beta blocker up titration when you are forced to make a choice, getting on that good regimen and then titrating up and where you prioritize where you titrate, I think is a good thing for our pharmacists and other cardiology professionals that listen to this podcast to think about. So I know that everyone could probably listen to you talk about this for days and days, but I want to make sure you don't have anything else you want to cover related to ACE, ARB, hydralazine, nitrate therapy. One thing I do want to say is this, is when you read the ACE inhibitor trials, you need to start with consensus and then go to the solved prevention, then the solved treatment trial, which studies the left ventricular dysfunction. And these were HEPREF patients. And then the SAVE trial. And, it, and I want you, as you're doing that, and you're looking at it, you can see there's a story there. Again, consensus is class four, solved prevention, which was more of a post-MI trial, but it also included more class one and two. They were asymptomatic. And then you had classes two and three with the treatment. And then you also then had SAVE, which was a, like kind of a mixture of everyone. But if you looked across the board, people who got the biggest bang for their buck in terms of mortality reduction, and again, this is pre-beta blocker, pre-MRA as background therapy, um, is the fact that you do. You see with the sicker the patient, the greater that reduction. It also, in, in an asymptomatic patient, the SALT prevention trial showed us, what, a 12% reduction. I mean, it's not minimal. Um, it's not, I mean, so yeah, even on our, on our patients just who are asymptomatic, they do benefit. So as your heart failure worsens, the benefits of that ACE are also going to be there. So that's number one. And then also number two was the ATLAS trial, uh, looking at high versus low dose, because how we were taught way back when was push the dose, push the dose, and patients couldn't tolerate it. But you know what? Now we don't have to do that because based on the ATLAS study, we can get away with lower doses. And there was some controversy too, again, with should I use a longer acting like lisinopril versus that of captopril versus enalapril. And then, you know, the bulk of the data at the time was primarily with enalapril and captopril. And so there was some theory that, well, we should probably be using shorter acting agents. Well, mm, no, <laughs> that's not the case. So another urban myth dispelled. So anyway, that's kind of interesting as you're reading through those, those trials. So I, I do feel like maybe the only other thing we didn't talk about at all was safety. I mean, we often as pharmacists are the ones driving monitoring. So we do need to make sure um, people are aware that it's normal to have upwards of a 30% increase in your serum creatinine. Absolutely. Thank you. You and I are on the same page. You don't stress out because it, within the 70s, it's going to normalize back. It, it vasodilates the afferent and efferent arterial. Of course, you're going to have a turn. <laughs> We're not looking at a change that's meaningful or harmful in most cases. There are exceptions. So you do need to monitor it, but it's not something to panic about. 
and likewise looking at the potassium and making sure that you're not panicking related to it, but you're making sure it stays safe as an entity for the patient. So these, these classic episodes, hopefully they're, you know, once they're a podcast, they're there forever. So luckily we've covered stuff all the way back into the eighties and um, modernized it for everyone bringing you forward to what we're doing now. We hope to do the same with beta blockers and MRAs down the line with regard to the management of HEFREF and also with a lot of our acute coronary syndrome data. And so um, I just like to thank you personally for being the first one to go on this journey with me. I've enjoyed our conversation. Absolutely. It's always a pleasure. Always a pleasure to come on your show. And thank you for joining us on this CardioScripts Classics episode. I'm walking with Dr. Page through the history of vasodilators and HEFREF. Thanks for tuning in to CardioScripts. If you've enjoyed the podcast, please tell your friends and subscribe and rate us on Apple Podcasts. You can follow us on Twitter at CardioScripts and check out our website at CardioScripts.com. The views and opinions are those of the individuals on today's episode. The ACCP Cardiology PRN is not responsible for the presented content or its accuracy.